You're listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The first reading today is from, hang on, uh, 1 Kings 19, 1 through 4, and then 8 through 15a, if that makes sense. Uh, all right, so I guess we'll just get started then. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to, uh, excuse me, Elijah to to say, may the gods do with me, be it ever so severely, if if by this time tomorrow I I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elisha was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said, to take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me, too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled, his, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man in the city who had demons met him. For a long time, he wore no clothes, and he did not have a house, but lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. 
For many times it, they had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would eventually break the bonds and be driven with the demons into the wild. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons have entered him. And they begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the shrine swine herd saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. The people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from the, whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the man who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with a great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. Please pray with me. Oh God, we know that you want the best for us. However, sometimes we want other things. Help us to hear your deepest concerns, those things that matter most to you, to make the world in your ways. Grant us what we need to accomplish your will in this wonderful world, and grant us the courage to seek your wisdom in all that we do. Amen. A good pilot does what it takes to get his passengers home safely. Max Lucado tells of a time he was flying somewhere over Missouri. The flight attendant told the passengers to take their seats because of impending turbulence. It was a rowdy flight, and folks weren't too quick to respond, so she warned them again. The flight is about to get bumpy. For your own safety, take your seats. Most did, but a few didn't, so she changed her tone. Ladies and gentlemen, for your own good, take your seats. And Max thought everyone was seated, but apparently he was wrong, for the next voice I heard was that of the pilot. This is Captain Brown, he advised. People have been getting hurt by going to the bathroom instead of staying in their seats. Let's be very clear about our responsibilities. My job is to get you through the storm. Your job is to do what I say. Now sit down and buckle up. About that time, the bathroom door opened, and a red-faced fellow with a sheepish grin exited and took a seat. Max then went on to ask, was a pilot wrong in what he did? Was a pilot being insensitive or unthoughtful? No, just the opposite. 
He would rather that man be safe and embarrassed than uninformed and hurt. Good pilot does what it takes to get their passengers home safely. And so does God. Here's a key question for you this morning. How far do you want God to go to get your attention? If God had to choose between your eternal safety or your earthly comfort, what do you hope God chooses? If God sees you standing when you should be sitting, if God sees you at risk rather than safe, how far do you want God to go to get your attention? God will whisper. God will shout. God will tug and touch. God will take, a, take away your burdens. If there's a thousand steps between you and God, God will take 999 steps towards you. And he'll leave the final one for us. The choice is ours. But understand, God's goal is not to make you happy. God's goal is not to get you what you want. It is to get you what you need. And if that means a jolt or two to get in your seat, then be jolted. Just think of God as your pilot. Think of yourself as God's passenger. And think twice before you get up to go to the potty. Max Licato has a way with words, doesn't he? So today we're going to take a quick look at two passages in which God goes to great lengths to get the attention of people. Elijah is remembered as one of the greatest prophets in Judah, but we have seen him acting just like us. In chapter 18, Elijah had the famous contest with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Their God couldn't get a fire started even though they prayed all day long. Elijah then called upon the God of the Israelites, and the fire came from heaven and consumed the bowl, the wood, the stones of the altar, the water, and the soil underneath. What a victory that was for Elijah, and of course, for God. Three years earlier, <clears throat> Elijah prayed that it would stop raining and the dew would stop following. And then he prayed for rain, and it rained after a three-year drought. Now, Elijah must have been feeling good. He must have been felt powerful. He must have felt like he was a success. I can just imagine him sitting at the city gates, kicking back and saying, it doesn't get any better than this. While Elijah was still sitting at those city gates, relishing the victory, a message came from the palace. Jezebel was not impressed by what Elijah had done. To put it mildly, she was ticked off. To paraphrase the message, it said, Buddy, you are in big trouble. I swear in my life that you will be dead by this time tomorrow. Elijah was scared. Elijah, the man who had just seen the great power of God through the fire in the rain, Elijah, who heard the voice of God, had been fed by ravens, experienced the supernatural provision of flour and oil for bread for the widow, 
for himself and the widow's son. Elijah, who had raised the dead, the boy from the dead, this very same Elijah was scared of this woman. So he ran for his life. He really did believe that Jezebel would kill him. He believed that he was the only prophet left in all of Judah. He believed that he was the only faithful Israelite. He believed that he was all alone, so he wanted to die. As he prayed for death, he got what he needed, not what he wanted. Not the answer he asked for, but what he actually needed. God spoke, but God asked a question. Elijah, what are you doing here? Think about it. Think about it, Elijah. Look deep down in your heart. Search your soul. Tell me, why are you here? Here in this emotional desert. Now, Elijah had been storing up his frustration for 40 days and 40 nights. So he lets God have it. I've done everything you told me to do. I've been faithful to you. I loved you. I proclaimed your word, just like you told me to. And what do I get for it? Heartache and pain. The very people you chose have rejected you and your covenant. They broke down your altars, and they killed all your prophets. And now they want to kill me too. Can you see what the self-pity of the past few weeks had done to Elijah? Now it's not a single woman who wants to kill him. It's all the people of Israel. And in his mind, he is the only righteous Israelite left. He's mad. He is indignant. He's been waiting for a chance to give God a piece of his mind. Have you ever been there? Elijah, God listened to Elijah, but didn't directly answer him. God prepared to pass by and was preceded by many demonstrations of power. But God's presence wasn't in the wind, in the earthquake, or in the fire. God's presence was in a gentle whisper. Elijah knew that God was there. He dared not look upon the face of God, so he covered his face with his cloak and went out to stand in the presence of God. This is the morning he had come for. What would God say to him? How would God explain what happened to him? What promise did God have for him? But God simply said, go back the way you came, all the way to the desert of Damascus, which is about twice as far as it was to go back to Jezebel. He told him to anoint a new king for Israel and to anoint Elisha to succeed Elijah as a prophet. In telling Elijah to anoint Elisha, I wish they had changed the names there a little bit. It's a little bit hard to distinguish. In telling Elijah to anoint Elisha, God was giving Elijah a companion as well as a successor because God knew that Elijah needed a friend, someone to talk with, someone with whom he could share his life, and someone, yes, even to share his frustrations. Elijah wanted to die, but God, what? Well, God knew what he needed, a new purpose, a new reason to live, a companion, a friend, a successor, 
and he didn't give him what he wanted. Do you know what you need? Not what you want, but what you really need. And actually, that's a difficult question to answer. The people of the Gerasi had everything figured out. In today's gospel, we meet a very strange character. A demon had possessed the man who lived among the tombs in the country of the Gerasenes. He was tortured inside and out by demons. He was the one to avoid, the one that mothers warn their children about. But the truth is that this man called the demoniac was probably not the only ones with inner demons. Many people in our society battle inner demons, the demons of addiction, violence, greed, or envy. And in our Bible reading this morning, we met many others who were battling their inner demons, although we may have to dig a little bit to understand them. In order to really understand the full story, we need to start with the pigs. You heard me right, I said the pigs. I would like to ask this question. What in God's name was God, were pigs doing in the Jewish town of Gezeray? The last time I checked, the eating of pork was an abomination to God in the law of Moses, as it is to this very day in a kosher Jewish community. And after I did a little digging, I found that the Gerasene community was located in a pretty metropolitan area called Decalopolis. And that city was thriving on international trade. The Gerasenes were engaging in the farming of pigs, an animal considered unclean in their own tradition. Now, I don't really blame them. I can't imagine, but I can't imagine living without pork and sauerkraut. Pork is very tasty. Or maybe they were only raising these pigs for the export of pork. So let's give these Jewish people of Gezerai the benefit of the doubt and assume that they were true to God's command for them. And for the most part, actually did not eat the pork they were producing. But even so, this poses an ethical question. If they believed it was a sin to eat pork, they were participating in a bad deed for others. Greed got the better of them. They were more concerned about making a quick buck than to spread the word of God to the Gentiles. Now we can say that the Gazarenes were full of arrogance, a judgmental attitude, and total indifference to their neighbors. Now if they loved their neighbors, they certainly would not have sold them something they believed was an abomination to God. This community then was engaged in religious hypocrisy now I can hear them say to themselves, oh, these Gentiles are going to hell anyway, so what difference does it make if we sell them pork? We'll give them what they want. So this community of the Gerasenes were part of a religious community gone astray. There existed an unspoken argument among the community members to carry on with their lives as if everything was kosher. And nobody, nobody mentioned that sin was like this 
proverbial elephant sitting in the middle of the room. So the Gerasene community carried enormous sins, and they were rationalizing them away, pushing them away, pretending it wasn't there. And what happens in such a community, in order to present a sense of personal and communal righteousness and as a way to push that problem away, so they scapegoated someone else. And the demoniac, well, he was the right person to fit the bill. He was a little strange to begin with. He was different, maybe a little crazy. He was on the margin of this community, just the right target. This man probably was not a bad man. He may have been ill, but somehow all the demons of his family, of his neighborhood, of his town, have been dumped on his head. He is made to carry the prejudice, the greed, the envy, the violence, and the hypocrisy of the town and its people. And every day, subconsciously, the hypocrisy, excuse me, every day, subconsciously, the townspeople can pat themselves on their back and tell themselves that they are good people. I'm glad I'm not as bad as that demoniac way out in the tombs. So in light of this, we can better understand why the people of the town were afraid after Jesus healed the demoniac. Instead of being happy about this wonderful thing of healing one of their own, they asked Jesus to leave the area. Why? Because now they would have to deal with their own problems, their own hypocrisy, their own sins, and could not project them on this mad demoniac. So now there was no one to blame but themselves. God gave them what they needed, took away their scapegoat, and gave them the opportunity to live faithful, righteous lives. In order to understand the significance of their fear and their anger, we need to look at the conversation between Jesus and the demons. Jesus thought that there was only one demon in the man, and they responded, our name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion was made up of a thousand soldiers. So that gives us an indication of the extent of the way that these town people had demonized the man. Jesus ordered the demons to go, and he sent them where they belonged, into the pigs. And that's where the problems and the sins of the Gerasenes started. And that's where the demonization, the externalization, and the projection needed to be directed back to. Jesus addressed the heart of the problem of the community. The demons entered the herd of pigs, and the pigs stampeded over the cliff and drowned in the lake. Problem solved. The community is seized with fear because they realize that God had seen right through their hypocrisy, had seen their sin, and had stopped them in their tracks. Do you know what you need? Not what you want, but what you need. How far will God go to get your attention? God will whisper. God will shout. 
God will touch and tug. Please understand, God's goal is not to make you happy. God's goal is to not give you what you want, but to give you what you need. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.